Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm, I'm kind of up to 90. I have to apologize in advance if there are breaks and interruptions in this podcast and if there are some strange noises which sound like things being knocked down and smashed to bits within the house because uh, the kitchen is being pulled out today. Um, so people are arriving here early this morning to do that kind of work, which is usually kind of noisy work. So, mm. so do- the destruction of stuff often incurs noise. Yes, it does. So it's uh, it's an unavoidable aspect to this particular recording, but I'll do my best to keep the disruption at a minimum. Um, but, you know, I can't promise uh, anything. So that's why we're recording early to try and get there ahead of, ahead of most of it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, how are you doing this morning? I'm all right. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, I'm t- I'm quite tired, to be completely honest with everybody. Uh, mm. Burnley turns out it's quite a long way away, um, and that slightly took its toll on me. I've had a bit of a mad week. Did you but- Did you drive up? No, no, no. I no. got the train, okay. which is is I think about the same length of time, but means you have to concentrate less, which is very welcome. True. True. Um, um, but it was, you know, it was, uh, I'd never been to Burnley. I was interested to see where they all live, you know, in their little caves and stuff. <laughs> and um, <laughs> no, it's surprisingly uh pretty place. But you know what? The- I, I know how to, I know how to, um, I know how to say, excuse me, do you know where the library is in Burnley? In the language right. of Burnley. Do you know how Go to on. do Boo! It's interesting, yeah. There, there is a culture there of booing almost everything. Um, I was up in the guards in the press box and had a lot of Burnley fans around me. And wow, they hate those soft southerners. They really do. They look, I mean, the thing about it is, is that they're, you know, they, they put it about themselves and they, they're physical and that's fine. Everyone can live with that. But the minute they get a bit back, it's like, boo. Mm. I, I don't quite get it. I think they just must do that at all times. Like, can you imagine the local maternity hospital and the doctor saying, here you go, Mr. Burnley. It's a beautiful baby boy. Boo, you little twat. Get used to that, you soft little prick. <laughs> 
Were you there yesterday? Because that was a very familiar voice. But yeah. They, uh, yeah, I mean, the booing, I think, is their main song. You know how, like, Arsenal, we sort of fall back on the old classics, like, we're by far the greatest team. They just go back to the boo every single time. Uh, I, I guess, you know, it's an old favourite there. Yeah. But it's, it's mightily frustrating, I've got to say, for an opposition fan. You know, especially when what you're being booed for usually is being kicked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they do. I mean, look, everyone loves a pantomime villain, right? It's part and parcel of football, the player on the opposition team who gets a bit of a wind-up. And they were targeting David Luiz because he called, I think, their their style of play anti-football last year when he was playing for Chelsea. They they haven't forgotten. These these booers have got long memories. But I found the, the targeting of Bukayo Saka, you know, an 18-year-old kid who's injured and you're booing him because he sat down on the ground injured and clearly was in some discomfort, some pain. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But that kind of thing is like, come on. Whatever mm. about David Luiz, he's a big man. He can take care of himself and he can be responsible for the things that he says. And, you know, I think calling a football team anti-football, you know, you're quite within your rights to have a go back. Is that know? what he'd done? They, they had yeah. him for him from the from kickoff. Like, yeah, that's what it was. Why. It was comments that he'd made while, while at Chelsea last year. So... Anyway, look, it's part and parcel of going to a ground like Burnley and part and parcel of, of what we have to deal with. Um, and, yeah. You know, it's it's kind of a side issue to what went on, really. But it it, it is, um, I don't know, it's well, just one of those play, things. If you play really, really well, I suppose, you know, it, it sort of becomes relatively inconsequential. You know, a team of enormous quality could probably impose themselves in spite of that stuff. Yeah. Um, which Arsenal, I felt, sort of threatened to do in the first 15, 20 minutes, but yeah. sort of didn't sustain for the whole game, which is kind of the story of Mikel Arteta's reign so far in some respects. Yeah, the inability to produce over 90 minutes. You know, mm. we, we have spells in games which are really good. And I don't think there's anything particularly unusual about this, you know. Um, no. We've had so many games, it feels like Arteta has been in charge longer than he has. He only, what, what was his first game? It was like the end of December. So he was appointed just before Everton, which Freddie Jumberg took charge off, and then it, it was a few games after that. I think there have been, since he was appointed, 10 so, games in 45 days. Yeah. So it's a pretty, pretty hectic schedule, his face. So his first game, his first official game in charge was Bournemouth on the 26th of December. Of course. It and was. it's now just the 3rd of February. And it, it feels like longer because we've had so many games, because there's been so much going on. So, you know, in reality, he's been five weeks, more or less, just over five weeks in the job. So, you know, to, to expect everything to be good and everything to be perfect, um, you know, is, is completely unrealistic. We've had the we've had the improvements that we've talked about quite a bit. But of course, there are there are other elements to that. Um, and I think you can analyze what's going on and what's what's happening and what he's doing and maybe what what he's doing well and maybe not doing quite so well or 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 could perhaps improve on without this being like a big thing about well you're being critical of a manager after four or five weeks you know what are you doing it's not necessarily being critical you're just analyzing the games and analyzing what's happening so nobody's making any wide judgments here about uh, you know what's going on and what's happening under Mikel Arteta but I do think you know the decisions he makes the team selections his in-game management the results all of those things lend itself to to discussion, which is why we're here, basically, to, to do a podcast. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about not dominating for the whole game is interesting because I suspect no teams really dominate for the whole game. You know, I, I don't think that's really a thing unless yeah. you're in a massively mismatched game. I think that the difference is that uh, it's capitalising on the periods when you are in yeah. control. And that's what Arsenal aren't really doing sufficiently to make good on the periods where they're good. Yeah. So, I mean, look, we started um, quite brightly and probably should have been ahead when uh, Aubameyang played across to, to Lacazette and he headed it wide. Um, mm. I, I think... I don't think I was surprised in any way that he headed it wide. He's a, a guy who looks like he's in, in really poor form at the moment. Well, you know, it looks like he's in really poor form. He is in really poor form. Um, and I, I think there's a wider uh, conversation to be had about him in, in a couple of minutes' time. But, you know, Aubameyang had a chance as well. He was put through by David Luiz. And for a player of his finishing ability, the way he missed that chance was um, it was unbelievable, really. So I, I, you have two really great opportunities in the open whatever it was 15 20 minutes mm. that your two big experienced strikers spurn badly and you know like you say when you have these periods of the game where you are creating chances and when you create good chances when you don't take them that you know they can often prove costly i think we got away with it yesterday because we didn't concede but you know uh, you have to you have to be looking at your your key players to take those chances particularly early in a game when it really would uh, change the complexion of of how it all all plays out yeah, exactly. It completely changes the game state of goal from either of those situations. Uh, I mean, they're both pretty good chances. I thought Aubameyang did well. It wasn't the only time in the game that he did well getting to the byline and putting a, a cross in. And that was a great ball for Lacazette. Mm. And he's got to just hit the target. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And the, the ball from Louise was excellent. I mean, Aubameyang in the first half was looking to make that kind of diagonal run all the time. Shaka found him later on in the half too with a, a lovely clip pass. Um, and, and that was our probably most dangerous as we looked is, is bypassing the midfield, going long over the top. Yeah. Uh, and Aubameyang, I was really surprised by how he took the first chance on. I mean, he kind of hit it with the outside of his boot, sort of on the bounce. He took it very early when he could have taken it in, I think, further towards goal. It wasn't a composed finish, not what you would expect from him in that situation. No, absolutely not. It was, you know, for a player of his finishing ability, I'm just going to see if I can watch it again here. It was a bit of a thrash, really. I yeah. Mean, it was almost like, you know, Burnley were appealing heavily for offside. And I kind of thought, does he think he's off here? Because he sort of takes it very casually and very early. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was a bit like when Robin Van Persie went through against Barcelona and got sent off. He just sort of you know, yeah. knocked it quite casually. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm just watching it again. And I think Martinelli is coming in at the back post. It's a difficult pass. But, you know, if you're Aubameyang and you're a striker, you've got to have a go at goal from that position. That's, you know, that's what you got to do. But, you know, a really, really bad uh, miss from him. I think it was a bad miss from Lacazette. We found ourselves in a difficult position with Bakayo Saka, who picked up an early injury, a kind of knee-on-knee clash, which I think impacted him and I don't know I don't know if you were able to see this from your vantage point uh, high up in, in the stands mm. at Boo Earnley but you know did he did he get another kick did uh, was there another impact because Mikel Arteta talked about him having a problem with his with his hip Oh really? I didn't. I didn't hear that. I mean, yeah. in the press conference, he said a knock on the on the knee. Um, maybe he said hip 
elsewhere. But, I mean, he was clearly in some pain and it, it was a surprise, I think, that he was left on as long as he was. I mean, the, the issue for me is that we just didn't really have someone on the substitutes bench to replace him. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's why you think of Ainsley Maitland-Niles. I mean, he's such a great player to have on the bench, I think. You know, he's a utility guy. He can play left back. He can play right back. He can play mm. left wing, right wing, centre midfield. I mean, I need to have a look at the bench now to see who was on it in his stead. But it did feel like a a bit of a, a glaring omission. Yeah, Tottenham. we had Socrates, well, Martinez, Amy Martinez, uh, Ceballos, Torreira, Willock, Pepe and Enkedia. So... You know, I do wonder if Maitland-Niles, in that in that situation, when you're going away, where you know you don't have a left-back um, and you don't have a, a, a backup for the right-back either, I just wonder if your choice when it comes to selecting your squad is between Ceballos and Willock, right? And then you bring yeah. in Maitland-Niles, which gives you that extra defender on the bench. It was a bit of a gamble from Arteta, and, you know, unfortunately... Um, I don't think it, it paid off. Uh, he wasn't asked about it in a press conference, but I do... I mean, I'm not trying to get Arteta out of jail here, but it's possible there might have been some issue, only because mm. Arsenal brought 19 men with them uh, and they brought Matt Macy, I believe, because I think he was involved in the warm-up. So the fact that Maitland-Niles mm. wasn't even that guy just makes me think mm, maybe there yeah, was something maybe there was maybe something we don't know about but uh, you know the, the the issue with Saka then um, when he went down and sat down on the pitch that's never a good sign you know a player no. who does that and he was put back on but he clearly wasn't comfortable he couldn't get forward he couldn't run he couldn't overlap we immediately lost that threat down the left hand side which was our our main attacking outlet, you know, and it has been a major attacking outlet under Mikel Arteta. I think it's one of those when he looks back on it, he will think, yeah, I didn't get that right. I should have taken Saka off, regardless of the fact that he didn't have, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, an obvious replacement on the bench. I a think he should have, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He should have done it more quickly than he did. Um, and I think that think cost us. Do you think his reticence to do that, his reluctance, stems from the fact that, you know, that left-back position has, for better or worse, become so important to the way we've played under, under Arteta? Yeah, maybe so. But also, like, if the guy can't do it, you've got to be realistic and say, well, you mm. know, as important as it is, we, we, we can't let this guy continue because we're, we were basically playing with 10 men and Burnley really piled on the pressure in the last part of that first half. The momentum of the game changed and all of a sudden they were the one, ones with the chances. We were the ones hanging on. And mm. I think that was in no small part to the fact that we were basically hamstrung by, by playing with 10 men or 10 and a half men because Saka was, was just not able to do what, what you expected him or you, you want him to do. Arteta was also critical of the team for uh, conceding too many free kicks in dangerous areas in that last part of the first half. Mm. And actually, I, I did notice that. And it's interesting, you know, we think of Arteta and his sort of willingness for the team to commit more cynical fouls, but he definitely wants those yeah. higher up the pitch. And uh, we did invite a little bit of pressure there because Burnley, to be honest, as you would expect, a lot of their threat did come from, from dead balls. Yeah, it did. I mean, lots of headers, a couple of headers which should have been... Uh, should have been goals probably um, we lived on the edge a little bit I have to say uh, they had good chances towards the end of the first half um, 
And, you, you know, I was a little bit... I wasn't surprised by the second half substitution. I thought Torreira... Uh, in midfield, if Shaka was going to left back, he was the obvious player to go to left back. Um, I mean, is it, is it worth saying now? Were you surprised he didn't start Torreira? I, I am. Yeah, mm. I am a bit surprised by that. I think he was um, encouraged by Genduzzi's performance against Bournemouth, which was good. But uh, I'll talk about Genduzzi in a moment. I, you know, I do want to chat about him briefly. The only other option he might have had was to was to put Bellerin at left back. And move yeah, either Socrates or, or Mustafi to, to right back. And he has played Socrates at right back before. So that was another option. But but I think what was a little bit surprising to me was that, you know, we started the second half very slowly. But I thought with Saka off the pitch, therefore losing that left-sided bias, because Xhaka is not going to get up and down. He's not going to overlap. You know, it, he just isn't physically capable of doing that. Well, he might be capable of getting up, but he can't get back as quickly as you would like. I thought there'd be more focus on the right-hand side. So all of a sudden, if we can't do it from the left-hand side, why don't we shift towards the right-hand side and get mm. Hector Bellerin further forward? Because you can't just go from having one... Uh, one attacking threat down your left hand side to basically none. You know, yeah, it was yeah, a yeah. it was a strange thing. I don't know if it was deliberate or if we just weren't able to do it. I think as the game went on, Bellerin got forward a bit more, but yeah. he wasn't doing the sacker job though on the opposite no. flank really. And I think you I think you make a really good point. You know, because Shaka in at left back makes a lot of sense because he's kind of been playing in that zone anyway in the build up um, he's played there before but what he's not going to do and what he's never going to do is overlap and get into the mm. final third I mean he hasn't just got the physical capacity to do it it's not his game and suddenly Arsenal kind of lost their ability to transition effectively and you know I thought you saw that in the fact that Aubameyang ended up switching with Martinelli going out to the right it almost felt like a sort of roll of the dice because it just wasn't really happening for those wide players uh, and, and Bellerin wasn't progressing as much as you would hope to see so yeah. I, I feel like after that first 20 minutes half an hour whatever it was you know we really did struggle to get a foothold in the game and, and some of that was down to Burnley I mean I remember at the Emirates Stadium Burnley played that high press and we really struggled with it for a period of time. Yeah, um, I th- yeah, I think you're right. Everyone's got this kind of rose-tinted view of that game against Burnley because of the Danny Ceballos performance. And it, was, it was a beautiful, warm, sunny day, and we won and everything else. But it was 2-1, and it wasn't necessarily, you know, convincing in terms of in terms of the scoreline. You know, 2-1 is a difficult uh, is a difficult scoreline. We know from from experience that just a one-goal league can be whittled away very quickly. So it was a good mm. win, but it wasn't quite as convincing convincing as I think it is in our memory banks. No, not at all. And I think, you know, they, they did a similar thing against us at Turf Moor and we, we cope better with it because I think mm. our playing out from the back feels a bit more coherent. Mm. But, you know, it, yeah, it, it was a it was a tough game. I'm trying to think if, um, if we had second half chances. I mean, there, there was kind of a reverse of the one for Lacazette mm. in the first half, wasn't there, with Lacazette this time crossing for Aubameyang. Yeah, that was about the best opportunity I think we had there was a Torreira shot from distance which was easy enough for the goalkeeper um, mm. but the Aubameyang header I mean it was just wide it was a decent header maybe not quite as guilt edged a chance as it, it looked but you'd expect a, a player like him to, to hit the target from there and I think from our defensive end we got lucky 
we really got lucky with with some of the chances that Burnley missed. There was a you know I think a header from the back post from a corner or a set piece I can't quite remember, and it went mm-hmm. just wide. Leno was rooted to the spot. It was one of those that if it dropped inside the post, there was no way he was getting anywhere near it. The Rodriguez uh, headed wide. You know they were a threat from set pieces, and then there was the Rodriguez miss, which is just an absolute shocker. You know for any striker to yeah. miss from there. Um, that was a real lucky escape for us. It was, it was. I mean, it was quite incredible. I was in line with it and I, I saw it sort of bounce and knock over the line and that was uh, a huge relief. They, you know, I chatted to a few Burnley fans after the game and unsurprisingly they came away from it feeling they really ought to have won that match. I, I think, you know, when you look at the chances we had too, I think it genuinely could have gone either way um, but you know it, it wasn't particularly secure for us especially in the second half no I think uh, you know on the balance of play I think Burnley have more right to feel unhappy that they didn't win than we do um, you know when you've got a, a guilt edge chance like the Rodriguez one a couple of the chances which they should have scored you know there was a header there was one from Hendrick late in the first half where he put it wide where the ball it was like uh, a yeah, bad yeah. cross and and it just sort of fell to him and he put it wide I think they had the better of the chances I mean the the records will show that we kept the clean sheet and that will go to um, the improved defensive statistics and, and performances that we've seen under Mikel Arteta but it was probably one of our least um, defensively assured performances in terms of chances and quality of chances that the opposition were given. So, you know, yeah. on, on that basis, I mean, I think if Rodriguez scores that, there's no way we come back. I think we, we we showed real character at Chelsea and we showed some resilience, but I don't know that we would have had it in ourselves to to find something had that Rodriguez chance gone in at that stage of the game. It didn't feel like it. I mean, I've just had a quick Google to see what, you know, the XG is saying, and it looks roughly about sort of 2.26 to 1.65. So, you know, that backs up what some better chances in the match. Um, no, it didn't look like we necessarily had what it would take to come back if we fell behind. I mean, you know, is that partly because of the decisions that were made in game? Is that partly because, you know, we had someone like Nicola Pepe on the bench but mm. didn't use him is there more that we could have done to assert ourselves as an attacking force in that 90 minutes mm. well look let's talk a little bit about that um, Alexandra Lacazette hasn't scored a goal away from home for a year mm. how, yeah. big, how big a problem is that it's a big problem it's a big problem and I feel like it's you know, I I, 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 love, I actually really like a lot of what Lacazette brings to the team and I sort of, to an extent, will go into bat for him because I feel like, in my mind, I think I know how this plays out. We put Aubameyang up front and then people say, oh, he doesn't hold the ball up, he doesn't do anything. You know, he, he's just not involved in the build-up. I feel like I've seen this happen before and then he ends up back out wide. But we need goals in this team and... You know, he's not providing them at the moment. He's not scored in any at any stadium since December, is it? December twelfth, yeah. Yeah. And and I think that it's affecting him. I mean, I think if you look at that header yesterday, to me that does show a striker who is lacking in a bit of conviction really in the final third. Mm. And yeah, I, I, I you know, I feel for him because he's playing through the rut and I can understand why Arteta is doing it but I, I'm not sure it's 
providing much of an upturn in terms of his efficiency? No, I mean, I, people talk about the hold-up play, and I think there were times yesterday where he he was really poor in that regard. There was one mm. maybe very, very early on in the game where it was a simple layoff back into midfield, and he just you know gave it to a Burnley player, and they, they counter-attacked. Um, I'm not sure those aspects of his game, you know, his goal scoring clearly is a problem at the moment because he's not scoring goals. He's not scoring goals away from home, which I think is a massive issue, whether that's psychological or whatever it is. You know, it shouldn't really be that different, but it is. It is a problem for him to score away from the Emirates. Um, the other, the other thing I think is when we play the way we did yesterday, we have Aubameyang out on the left hand side. We know he can be effective there, but it means moving Martinelli to the right hand side, where I'm not sure he's quite as effective. Um, you know, he's he's done well from the left hand side. I just wonder if by squeezing Lacazette into the team you're doing it at the expense of other players in their best positions. You know, the age-old the age old argument about Aubameyang playing as a central striker, like we know he can score goals from the left-hand side, but is that not just a, a, a testament to how good he is at moving and getting into the box and finding positions to score from anyway? You know... Mm, yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. I mean... It's so interesting with Lacazette because how long ago was the Chelsea game? Not that long ago. And I feel like after that game, I was like, wow, what this guy's doing at centre-forward, you know, he's put so much work for the team. And granted, he had a bad game at Burnley, but as did Aubameyang, as did Martinelli. And I sort of think, to my mind, he's not... He's not underperforming so dramatically because I think he's being asked to play in a different zone. I think people look at it and go, well, he's the striker. You know, when Sky Sports line up the system at the start, he's the one who's the furthest advanced. But the reality is that, you know, Bemiang is is actually the one who is the spearhead of the attack. Everything is going into his channel. I mean, the whole setup is geared down that inside left side, really. And Lacazette, a lot of the time, is about 40 yards from the goal because that's what he's being asked to do. So... I, I have more sympathy with him than most. I know most people are just like bin off Lacazette because I did a poll yesterday. Oh, really? On my Twitter feed. <laughs> I did a poll about who should be dropped before the game, and I suspect the. And I think 60% of people said Lacazette out of the choice of sort of Pepe, you know, Aubameyang, Ozil. If someone had to be sacrificed to make room for Martinelli, who should it be? Mm. I think 60% of people said Lacazette. I suspect it would be higher post-game and I'm not saying he played well and I'm not saying he is playing well I just I look at it and I don't I suppose I don't think Nketiah would be better in that role no I don't necessarily think he would be better in that role but I think I would prefer to see Aubameyang up front Martinelli on the left and Pepe on the right the Pepe thing of course is another conversation there's a, yeah that's there's, there's I think it's reasonable now to worry about what it is that he's doing or what it is that you know Emery Freddie and now Arteta are seeing that makes them so reluctant to pick him like we can uh, yeah. talk all we want about what he might or might not have done yesterday and you know we I think there is a, a player with some ability there and some talent there, but I don't think you can ignore the fact that three managers in succession have been reluctant to choose him 
and play him and bring him on as a sub. You know, I, he started a number of games in a row now under Arteta. And yesterday when we needed to win a game, when we needed a goal, when we needed something mm. different, when we needed mm. an outlet, he didn't bring him on. Yeah, it's a real concern. It's a real concern because Arsenal can't afford this transfer to not work out. And I'm not saying that him not playing this one game means it won't work out. But, you know, Emery, Jumberg and Arteta are different enough coaches with different enough backgrounds and opinions that the fact that they've all at some point thought, you know, maybe he's not the guy to start is deeply concerning. And, I, you know, I think we've sort of landed on this idea that it's because of what's happened in training, but I don't necessarily think it is. Um, and also, I don't think that Pepe, for as much as he's shown flashes of brilliance, you know, it's very difficult to argue that he has consistently impressed. I mean, of the, of the four big attackers, I wrote about this today, I mean, we're all talking about it, uh, which are Aubameyang, Ozil, Lacazette, uh, and Pepe, I think only Abemian could be said to be having a good season, really. Um, and I think all the rest, you know, you have to question their their places yeah. and their involvement. And it, it feels a little bit like a problem that needs fixing, to be honest. Yeah. Look, I think there's some mitigation with Pepe because... You know, he's a new signing. He's arriving in a new country. We know all this. He came into a team which wasn't performing particularly well. Yeah. You know, it can take some time to adapt. So I think there is some mitigation there for Pepe, and I'm not by any stretch of the imagination writing him off. I am concerned, though, that we've had three coaches in a row who have some concerns about using him and when they use him. For whatever reasons they might be, we're not privy to those. Really, we've got some vague notions of, you know, um, I think all three of them have basically said something along the lines of, well, you know, he's got to work hard. He's got to show that he deserves to play. You know, those kind of generic statements, which lead you to think that perhaps there's an, an issue with, um, if not commitment, but... but um, application. Application, exactly. That's That's what I'm looking at. So I think it's fair to be concerned by that. Lacazette, I think, is having a disaster of a season. He really is. I know he was injured at the start and maybe he's still suffering from that, but, you know, given his age, given his experience, what he's producing is is not good enough, um, mm. in my opinion. And that's a difficult thing for Arteta to deal with because, like you, I can kind of understand why he's using him. But I think yesterday, picking a player who hasn't scored a goal away from home for a year and also picking a player in Mesut Ozil who hasn't made an assist away from home since January 2018. The day before he signed his new contract. The day before he signed his new contract is... You're, it's too much of a gamble. Like, I think he is trying to rely on the senior players, the experienced players, and I can completely understand why that is. But I think he's got to look at what those players are producing or not producing particularly in away games, and find a different solution. Because you cannot win games when you've got two players in your side who consistently fail to produce anything tangible on the pitch. And, you know, with Ozil, people will say, well, he's lazy and it's this and he's, you know, he doesn't work hard enough. And I don't think that's the case. 
I, I don't think do, it was yesterday at I don't all. think that's no. been the case with Mikel Arteta either. I think he's no, no. worked hard. He's got his head down. He's doing his running. He's, you know, he's positionally better. You know, I think he is trying to do what Mikel Arteta wants him to do. But I just wonder if we're looking at an Ozil whose decline has been so sharp that he just cannot produce the things that he was capable of producing a couple of years ago when he was probably at the peak of his talent. Yeah, well, I, I was struck in the first half by how... Well, first of all, that Ozil turned up, which was nice of him, away to Burnley. It feels unusual that he plays there. But uh, the second of all, he was quite physical. He put himself about. He was, you know, pressing. He was he even won a header at one point in the middle of the park. And I was like, hang on a minute. Mm. But for all that, the quality just isn't what it was. And, you know, I think... He was welcomed back into the team by a lot of people. But I think he's shown that he just isn't the same player that he was. And I think that's inarguable at this point. No, I mean, look at look at the numbers. Yeah. He doesn't score anymore. He doesn't make assists anymore. He is supposedly the, the creative hub of the team or that would be how he's perceived anyway and, and particularly in the role that he plays and where he plays on the pitch and the freedom that he has you know mm. I think that's uh, yeah it's it's a real worry it's a real worry that you know he just cannot produce and you know I feel for Arteta as well because he doesn't have much else to choose from when it comes to a squad when it comes to a player in, in that position but how how much more evidence do you need that when it comes to away games, Mesut Ozil really struggles? He really struggles mm. to to uh, to produce. Uh, and, and it's not about his talent. I mean, there was one pass he produced yesterday. I don't know if you remember where he sort of flicked it off the outside of his foot and it went up in the air over somebody's head. And, you know, yeah, even yeah, the yeah. Burnley fans appreciated that. But in terms of productivity... I completely concur that he's not there. And I think that like Lacazette, Arteta's picking him because of sort of some idea of what he structurally brings to the team. But I, I do think that what has happened is that Arteta's come into the squad and he's looked at those big four attacking talents. And for the most part, he's tried to get that quartet on the pitch together and he's looked mm. to sort of... I'm not going to say appease, but he's looked to sort of settle those big personalities who were probably very unhappy by the end of the Unai Emery reign, particularly Mesut Ozil, but probably Aubameyang and Lacazette to an extent too, with the type of football that's being played. Pepe, we know, was on the outside. And he's looked to sort of, you know, try and give them a chance to make it work as a four. But I think away from home, particularly we have to say it's not really. It's not especially working. And I think we're entering sort of a new phase now of the development of the side where where Arteta might have to make choices between yeah. some of those players. No, yeah, I think and, you're right, yeah. And it might be a case of one of Aubameyang or Lacazette or one of Ozil or Pepe. And I think, you know, when you look... I mean, as much as I've would defend Lacazette and think he does have an important structural role on the team if it's a case of one-off then I think there's only one answer and that's Aubameyang mm. and actually personally if it's a case of one-off Ozil or Pepe 
I actually think Pepe is the only answer because you've invested so much money in him and he's young and unlike the rest of these guys, he's under a long-term contract. He is potentially a big part of the future. Yes, uh, that's the key I thing, isn't it? Yeah, You have to give him his head at some point. He is the future and... Whether you're a fan of Mesut Ozil or not, it's very difficult to argue that he is the future at 30, 31 years of age um, and heading into the final year of his contract, a contract which, of course, is not going to be renewed. So I think, you know, it is it is um, interesting now that we have this two-week break, isn't it, that I think it will give Arteta some time to, to think and to discuss with his staff about, you know, w- what he does, how he does things, his team selections, who he can rely on, who he who he can't, I think he'll have a better idea of that. Like you say, he's had 10 games in 45 days with these players. Mm. It's a steep, sharp learning curve, and I think he will have learned quite a bit uh, about them, um, what they can produce, what they can't produce, what combinations are working, what aren't, what needs to to improve, what needs to perhaps, you know, take a back seat, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, this isn't necessarily to be critical of Arteta, but I think he does have to give serious consideration to how he sets up this team from or for the rest of the season. Because, look, yesterday we were a bit lucky to keep a clean sheet, but overall I think defensively we have been better and more secure. The, the, the thing now is to get the team working from an attacking point of view. He's got to make it click. He's got to make it work better than it has. Um, mm. And that's the next challenge, and I think that's a, a big thing that he's he's going to have to work on in this two week break. Yeah, and he'll be so I think relieved and happy to have that break and that time mm. to work with the players because, like we say, he's not really had that. It's been frenetic. Yeah, and so he can sort of reevaluate and take stock. But you know, it's interesting, isn't it, watching the sort of reaction to this match play out? It's kind of a few people saying, "Well, that wasn't great." Then a few people jumping on those people saying you mustn't criticise Arteta. Other people saying, is Arteta up to it? I mean, uh, my personal opinion is we just look like a team that's still very much a work in progress. And given, A, the inexperience of our manager and B, the problems that we knew were within the squad anyway, I just don't think that's a massive surprise. No, look, and I think, you know, I I genuinely think that um, if... If you're to step back and look at where Arsenal are, objectively, right? Where are we in the table? 12th? Something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think we were level with Burnley, weren't we, going into the game? I know we're 10th. We we're 10th. We're 10th. Okay, we're 10th. We're level one points with 13th, though, it's worth Okay, saying. so we've only won six games this season. We've drawn 13. Yes, there's an extraordinary statistic about that, about how, you know, the last time we only won six of our first 25 games was in 1913 and we were relegated. (laughs) Yeah. So we're looking at an Arsenal team who, as extraordinary as Liverpool are, and it's difficult, you know, maybe unreasonable even to use them as as a, a genuine marker. But we are 42 points behind the league leaders in the start of February, right? This is the worst season Arsenal have had for, what, decades? In terms of games won, points won, goals scored, all of those metrics. Mm. We are, in terms of where we wanted to be and where we're, where we expect it to be, way below that. I don't know why we're looking at Arteta. 
I don't understand how it is that people aren't looking higher up for the answers, or if they want to apportion some blame, look at the people higher up. Look at the, like, should yeah. you not as, if you're the head of football at Arsenal and you've you've created an environment in which this kind of performance has been churned out game after game after game, should you not be under serious, serious scrutiny? It shouldn't be Arteta after five weeks in the job. To me, that's absurd. I agree. I agree. I, I, I really, a, yeah. It's a season of historically bad proportions. So who, and yeah. And I think, you know, Josh, uh, who, let's face it, is who, you know, controls the club, uh, needs to be looking at the people on the football side yeah, uh, and saying that this isn't good enough, really. And there's been a lot of talk about instilling a, a culture of accountability at Arsenal and that cu- accountability should extend right to the top of the club. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I mean, Arteta's taken over in incredibly difficult circumstances. A team that was broken, but, you know, this was a, a, a situation which was allowed fester for way too long. The sort of back-channel noises about how it was to do with, you know, the fans and all that kind of stuff was probably the most misjudged communication that, that Arsenal have put out in years and years and years. Sanyehi and his desire to give Emery a, a, a new contract, I think that's highly, highly questionable. And, yeah. you know, time will tell and the proof will be in the pudding. But I do think there are also very, very serious concerns about how we are recruiting players and through which channels those players are coming into the club. I know not everyone agrees and people will say you've got to deal with agents, etc., etc., but I, I just worry that the recruitment side of Arsenal Football Club has been handed over or very, very strongly influenced by people who do not have the best interests of Arsenal at heart and who have kind of moved into this power vacuum that, that was created when Wenger left, when Mislintat left, when Gazidis left, and when Sanyehi himself sort of assumed the power there was just this space for people to move into, vultures, if you like, and I'm really worried about that side of things. So, you know, as things don't go as well as we might like on the pitch, and we can all focus and and talk about those things and discuss those things and be as rational as we like, I don't know why there isn't more focus on the people who are running this club and who have, through the way that they've operated, the decisions that they've made, and everything else, created this horrendous season that we're all enduring right now mm. yeah I think uh, football executives generally are very lucky that managers take the brunt of things and I think a manager who's been in place for six weeks taking any kind of brunt at the moment would be completely yeah. unreasonable um, and I think you're right to talk about the transfer business I think you know yes we got the players that we want the positions that we need but there was still a lot of surprise and consternation from various people about about uh, some of those deals. I mean, if you read David Ornstein's column in The Athletic today about Suarez, Southampton were pretty staggered. <laughs> Arsenal did came you, along did, and did that deal. I, I, I read that column today and uh, uh, there was, what was the, the line? It was really quite understated, but there was some concern that Suarez arrived at Arsenal in a knee brace. 
So he signed yeah. a guy who arrived with a, you know, and and look, you saw the pictures. Everyone saw the pictures. Um, Suarez is a client of George Mendes. But in the pictures, there's Kia Jarabchian looming over him, smiling like a kind of, I don't know, like a guy doing a, what's that uh, movie with Al Pacino where he's the devil? Yeah, I mean, what I found amazing is that I was like, that must be the least evil picture of him they could use. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They were like, do we try and do one a bit less evil here? A bit <laughs> less evil? Uh, he can't quite muster it. I mean, I don't actually... Uh, so the people I've spoken to, I can't confirm whether or not Mendes is still involved, but certainly Kia uh, has worked with the player for a, a little while, and that's no surprise at all because, you know, his involvement in Arsenal's transfer strategy appears to be... Significant, enormous, uh, yeah. Um, especially given that Kazawa was on the table as well. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, look, there are definitely some concerns about that. It's it's a really big debate because I know what a lot of people think is, well, we got the players, and in the past maybe we wouldn't have got the deals done. I know that a lot of people think that, um, but I think that allowing. Um, how can I put it? Uh, allowing someone, uh, people whose interest is pre- predominantly as player representatives or agents to dictate uh, the business that you do is simply unhealthy. Uh, I don't think it's right. Yeah. I don't think it's what we, I don't think it's what we signed up for. And I think it's a long way from what was intended when Ivan Gazidis, for all his flaws, did set up a model which included, you know, Sven Mislintat. You know, this feels like a very different way of operating. It certainly does. I mean, Mislintat, as we know, as a scout, was somebody who would identify talent and and try and and work, uh, you know, scout them, work them. And and the the idea was we do that work. We do the the scouting. We, We look at the statistics. We we recruit players or identify targets in a modern way, not because your mate has got a right back that might be handy for you to sign. That's not the way it should work in 2020. And that Mm. seems to me like that's the way it's working at Arsenal right now. Mm. Like the last number of signings that we've made, Louise, David Louise, right? Um, uh, who, Who else am I thinking of? Uh, Pablo Marie is a client of Arturo Canales, who is a, mm-hmm. a you know, Sanye's kind of right-hand agent man in a way. He was the mm-hmm. guy who brought Emery to the club, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, Kia involved in the Suarez deal, um, you know, just the links to the players that are coming in. It doesn't strike me that this is part of a uh, sort of recruitment strategy that's based on. Um, Scouting and the technical side of things—it's based on the contacts book, and uh, yeah, yeah, I'm just—I'm worried about it. That's all. I'm worried about I, it. I think it's right to be worried about it. The only mitigation, I suppose, is you know we still get our Martinelli, for example. You know there are players who we have bought that have seemed, you know, like Pepe, maybe that do seem a bit more scouty. I well, guess Pepe was one of the hottest pro- prospects in Europe, and of course, we required the services of George Mendes to get that deal over the line for some yeah, reason. Of course, so. yeah, I, I, it is. It is a really different way of operating, and it is um, worrying. It is worrying, mm. and it's not. You know, it's not what Arsenal have done for years, and and it's not. 
it's uh, and I know the problem is every time I say that I can hear people saying well Arsenal haven't been great for years and they haven't got business done and I appreciate that I suppose I just feel like when you get so into bed with a small number of agents you are essentially choosing from a small pool and look maybe Pablo Marie and Cedric will turn out to be great signings and certainly I've got higher hopes for for Pablo Marie than than I do for Cedric but it's you know are they the best that we could have got or are they just the ones that we could do conveniently yeah and I think and there it's is fine, a distinction yeah. between those there things. is but it's also finding the balance isn't it that you know okay you need that player therefore it's convenient it's handy it's, it's yeah. expedient or whatever but like you know if, if the numbers are to be believed the the fee for Suarez is like five million coming uh, towards five million euros or five million pounds between wages, transfer fee or loan fee, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like, are we to believe that that's the best way we could spend five million? Mm. That there isn't a sort of young right back out there that we could bring in, you know, nineteen twenty year old player, maybe a, a lower league club who could come in and understudy Hector Bellerin and be that right back. Is that not a better way to spend five million when you're a club that doesn't have a huge amount of of money available? You know, it's it's weird. Yeah. I tell you what will be very interesting, James, is that the Premier League release a uh, a figure uh, somewhere around the start of April of how much clubs have paid agents. Um, mm. I'm very curious to see Arsenal's figure this year. I suspect it will be substantially higher than it has been in the past. Mm. Um, yeah, we shall see. We'll, we await that with uh, basic breath. All right, look, let's take a little break here and we will come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog, and on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Uh, also, you get uh, ad-free Arsblog apps on Patreon too. And just uh, for anybody out there who is using the iOS app uh, on your iPhone or iPad, and if Arsblog News is not 
start loading for you. Just delete the app and reinstall it, and that should fix it for you, okay? We did have a, a few little problems, so apologies for the inconvenience, uh, but all you need to do is just delete and reinstall, which is the, you know, the uh, mobile app equivalent of turning it off and on again. So uh, hopefully, hopefully that will, will, will sort your problems out. James, I'm going to go first with the questions here. Mm. Um, and the first one, it comes from Don't Turn Back, who's at underscore don't underscore turn underscore back. And he says, can you please apologize to Mustafi? Ah, <laughs> I, did, I did think that might come up. Um, I have to say, look... Like you, I think we were lucky to get a clean sheet yesterday. But on an individual level, I thought Mustafi was pretty good. And he won a lot of headers. I think he won more aerial duels than anybody in the game, which against Burnley isn't easy. And I was surprised that he started the match. But I thought he managed somehow to justify his selection. Now, of course... I, all that does really in my mind is bring us closer to his next inevitable fuck-up. Uh, I just feel like, you know, when you get 90 minutes of decent Mustafi, that means you're getting, probably going to get a lot less minutes of that next time you see him. But So, yeah, I, I congratulate him on his performance. I congratulate him sit quite seriously on the sort of resilience shown um, and the fact that he's mm. still plugging away and as you pointed out, seems absolutely indestructible. I mean, we thought he was going to be out for months a yeah. couple of weeks ago, and then there he is playing a few days ago, rather. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm not necessarily of the mind that now Mustafi is, you know, fixed. No, me neither. Me neither. I mean, look, he was good yesterday, and I think we've seen performances like this from Mustafi down the years. It's not as if he has ever played or never played well. No. You know, the, the problem with Mustafi is that he's a 90% guy. 90% of the time he's fine. Maybe he's a 95% guy. It's just those 5% moments which can come at any time in a game. Like he's had a hard time. He's undergone this kind of redemption recently. And it's kind of all right and heartwarming in its own way. But, you know, it doesn't mean that all the stuff that happened beforehand never happened. Or that yeah. people weren't right to be concerned about the mistakes that he made. It was only a couple of weeks ago where he made that terrible mistake against Chelsea. And David Luiz got sent off. Now, on the night, we were uh, fantastic and resilient. And we, we deserved the 2-2 draw. And the players uh, deserve massive credit for that. Mm. But had we not scored those goals, I'm not sure people would be feeling quite as generous towards Mustafi as as they are right now you know so yeah. it's okay to be uh, to say he played really well against Burnley but it doesn't mean that we should forget all the other stuff that's happened Arteta seems to like him and I think what he quite likes about him is his willingness to play um, passes between the lines in defence and into midfield which he did successfully quite a few times yesterday I but he also he, likes. He, he also just whacked a few fucking long balls out for a throw under not much pressure at all. You mm. know, so he's not this flawless distributor either. Um, maybe it says something about Socrates. I, I don't know. But look, 
if Mustafi plays great between now and the end of the season, I'll be delighted because, uh, you know, we'll have a better chance of keeping clean sheets and not conceding goals. Does it mean that I would be happy for us to go into next season with Mustafi as our starting central defender? Absolutely not. The weight of evidence over Mustafi's career versus this kind of um, couple of decent performances of late, you know, it's very heavily in the direction of we need to do better. And I still think we need to do better. And credit to him for being professional and keeping his head down and dealing with the criticism and all that kind of stuff. But that's his job. He's a professional Mm -hmm. player. That's his job. But, you know, I I don't, you know... I'm not here to hammer the guy or anything like it. I just have uh, an opinion on him based on years of watching him and not the last two games. That's absolutely fair. And I think that's right, to be honest. I mean, to be the fact that he's starting games makes me... If I was Pablo Marie, I'd be thinking, hang on a minute, I've got a chance here. Because if, if Arteta doesn't quite fancy Socrates, you know, I'd sort of assume Socrates and Louise was the partnership moving forward. But if that hierarchy's not as established, I wonder if, if if Pablo might be looking at that and thinking, oh, hang on, I might be able to squeeze in there, mm. maybe shift Louise over to the right or something like that. So, yeah, I, I was intrigued by the selection of Mustafi, but I thought he... He justified it, but it doesn't give me any great confidence in him sort of going forward in the in the midterm. No, no. Um, Saliba's uncle, uh, who's at MD Gunner, I don't know if it is actually Saliba's uncle, but if it is, thanks for persuading him to sign. It must have been a diff- difficult job. <laughs> Asked, and there have been various sort of variations on this question. Do you think Arteta is scared to drop the big boys? No, I don't think he's scared. But what I think he's done is in the early stages of his career look to experience as a way of of um, turning things around. And I think most managers will do that to a large extent. Um, you know, they'll look to guys who've been there and done that, who understand the game, who understand the game from, you know, a tactical level, a positional level. They've been around the block a few times. You, you know that they have produced on a consistent basis. I, you know, one of the things we always talk about with young players, isn't it, is consistency. Mm. It's difficult to get consistency from an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old player. One week they can be great. The other week they can be uh, not so great. And that's just the way it goes as you're learning the game as a, as a player. So if he's trying to produce some consistency, the fact that he's going with the big boys um, makes sense to me. This is where I come back to this two-week break and, and what he's going to do afterwards. He has stressed more than once that he will pick his team based on merit. He even said at the weekend, like, it doesn't matter if it's an academy player or a, you know, a big signing, if they deserve to play, they will play. And I think he will actually uh, be true to that. I'm not sure that, for example, when Unai Emery tried to implement something similar, he stuck with it. If you remember the way that he, you know, froze Mesut Ozil out, then brought him back yeah. because, you know, he he needed to do something different with the team. So I don't mm. think it's a question of being scared to drop the big boys. I just think that the fixture schedule, the difficulty of the job, you know, the, the fact that really all our training has been 
match, recovery from the match, bit of preparation, match, recovery from the match. He hasn't had a great deal of time to work on on systems and formations and tactical things. I think this two-week break will be very useful. And I suspect that as the season goes on, he may well uh, eschew the, the experienced players in order to give minutes to somebody different to do something different but also to build and develop those players ahead of next season if they continue not to to give us anything tangible yeah I think as I sort of said in part one that he kind of understandably sort of you know sought to get the big boys on side if you want to call them that and I think a manager who's never managed a game coming into a club where they've got massive names like Aubameyang and Ozil and it's inevitable that they would want to do that and they would want to create unity give people clean slates in the case of Ozil you know and Pepe just try his best to get all those influential figures on side on his team part of his plans I think that you know, I think we had a question last week about what do we want to see more of from Arteta, and I think I said ruthlessness, and I think some might be required when it comes to dealing with some of these big attacking players. And um, you know, one of the, the the problems I have is when I look at Aubameyang, Lacazette, and Özil, particularly, I don't see the future of this team. And and I, the reason I don't see that isn't just their respective ages, but it's their contractual situations as well. You know, they're not going to be part of this project certainly not all three of them in the in the mid term so I think we have to to an extent either choose either or choose. look beyond them and I, I understand why that's not really happening until the summer but it is going to come sooner or later and arguably that for the future of this club you know Pepe we mentioned but also some people like Martinelli Saka even to an extent and Ketia might be more important. So I hope there is game time for those guys mm. between now and the end of the season. Here's one I've seen a few times, and I think, you know, I know what my answer to this is, but I've seen the question doing the rounds yeah. quite a bit. Um, Jake Van Dright on the Facebook page says, with Ozil struggling, what about using Lacazette as a number 10? Lacazette has a great work rate, and I think he could force some turnovers high up the pitch. I also think his link-up play is excellent. So my point of view on this is... I don't really know how much that changes. I mean, I think he's not playing that dramatically different a role anyway. The way I see it, he's dropping into that kind of nine and a half space. I suppose what it would do is it would enable you to put someone in front of him, but it's not a position that he has played before. So it's worth a try, but I I wouldn't approach it with a massive amount of confidence. What about you? (laughs) Uh, No, no. I just, you know, I think... I think this idea that Lacazette is brilliant on the ball or is a brilliant all-round footballer, I don't really know where that comes from. And, like, I don't uh, dislike Lacazette at all. I think he's he's a decent striker. We did have a question um, from... Boom, 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 let's see. Uh, from Jake G, who's at Snake Hips JG, who says, is Lacazette actually that good? He's like a poor man's super Kev, Kevin Campbell, or Will Tord. And I think that's probably kind of where he is. You know, I think he's a kind of Will Tord-esque player. Could score you some goals. He's quite good. But I don't know why people think he's he's that brilliant on the ball. You know, um, 13 passes he, yesterday, 72% yeah, he's not a great completion. Of the you know, he's not a great... He's not a great passer. Uh, you know, so I, I think the idea of Lacazette as a number 10 is, is kind of... Yeah, it's never going to work. It's a bit ridiculous, but... 
uh, it, it's definitely shoehorning him into the, into the team in a position which doesn't suit him. Um, yeah. Which you could I, say about striker at the moment as well. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think people do forget, like, he did win our player of the season last season. Yeah. Like, he, he's not a bad player. I mean, he, he was literally our player of the season. And granted, it wasn't an amazing season, but the fans voted him as our best player. So... I do find it interesting that 12 months on, everyone's like, he's just crap now. I don't think that's right. I think I think he's just having a bad time. He's out of form. He's lacking confidence. And he looks a worse footballer for it. But, and I think, you know, Arteta's response to that has been to keep playing him. Mm. But maybe that isn't right. Maybe that isn't right. Maybe it's not helping him. Um, certainly it's not helping his perception because people are looking at it and going, well... You know, th- this isn't great. And I and I get that. And I, I also think there's a big question mark over whether he's even going to be at Arsenal next season. But mm. I think... I don't think... Uh, yeah, what can I, what can I say? I, I don't think that those qualities have gone permanently. I think that those aspects of his game, which are good, could come back. I mean, if you ask me what I think he's really good at, I think... The irony is, I think he is actually very good in the penalty box and he's not playing in the penalty box. Like, I think he's good getting shots away. Like, there was an incident at Burnley. Do you remember there was a move where Martinelli was played in and he sort of didn't quite take the shot on and he gave it to Lacazette and he did that thing where he sort of... Turns and... Turns inside the box and lifts it and it gets blocked. And actually, that's where Lacazette is, for me, at his best often, is in that 18-yard box. He's got that slight... Defoe-esque ability to spin and get a shot away but he's doing all his work 30-40 yards from goal so we're not seeing that and I think that's not a failure of the system but a product of the system so not only is he not playing well I don't think we're asking him to do what he does best so I think it's kind of twofold but saying all that you know, I completely understand people wanting him out of the team, and I think probably it is the right time mm. to try something else at this stage. Well, look, uh, just sort of following on from that, and your your um, suggestion that he might not be with us next season, mm. uh, Dan Davis, uh, Dan Davies, who's at Dan underscore D underscore nineteen seventy three, says, "I think it's a possibility that our front two depart in the summer. It doesn't fill me with total fear because I don't think it's worked." Um, if this were the case, what would your recruitment strategy be? Well, I must say, when I said Lacazette would be going, that's not um, you know an insider info thing or anything like that. That's just me looking at the situation and thinking, I can't see both these strikers being here next season. And you know, part of that goes back to the recruitment. I don't think they were bought with any kind of coherent plan of how they might play together. Um, and no. I still think that's an issue. Still, they were bought within six months of each other. Know, it's kind yeah. of crazy, isn't it? Fifty million and fifty-five million, yeah, yeah. on strikers. When you know, you could easily say the, um, you know, the money could have been spent elsewhere. I mean, I, I saw someone else ask this question. I can't remember where it is, so apologies if I, if I can't. Uh, don't give me the name check. But I mean, do you think, despite the fact that they're great mates, that Lacazette and Aubameyang work well together on the pitch generally? I think there was a little spell towards the end of last season, wasn't there, where they were kind of playing in a 3-5-2. Everyone thinks of that Atletico Valencia game, sorry, yeah. away, where there was a little period then where they were winning us games because the rest of the team was so dysfunctional. So 
I think they can play in a you know more conventional two, but are we ever going to play that system under Arteta? I doubt it. Um, I just think that with their ages and with their contractual situations being what they are, we might as well. We might as well sell one. I mean, you know, I know there's fear about losing them, but it's not like what we have is working brilliantly. You know, I know mm. one way of looking at it is, well, take their goal, take up Birmingham's goals out of the team, you know, or Lacazette out of the team, you know, where would we be? Sure, but where are we? We're, we are a mid-table side. We might as well, if we're ever going to reboot and start again, I'd argue this might be that time. And So do you sell one or both? I I would sell one, probably. I would probably sell one uh, and get some money into the club and keep one, you know, for a bit of security. And I think given his goal record, I think you've got to keep a Bamiang, really. What about his con- What about his contract? He's only got a year left on his contract, therefore you're going to lose him for free. You're going to have to replace him in 12 months. Do you not bite the bullet and say... We'll take what we can get for Aubameyang. And maybe, like you say, maybe. you reboot, you use that money to to fund a replacement or, or two. I mean, let's say we could get our money back, right? Let's say. Well, we no, I if- don't think we are going to get anything close to our money back. I don't Do think that's. Not? No, no. Why? How? 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 He's like two and a half years older or two years older. I don't know how many. He's been two years. He'd be two and a half years older than when he signed. With 12 months left on his contract, and he's going to be whatever age he is, 31, 30? How old is he now? He's 30. He's as old as he is. The season. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the just the market value of that doesn't lend itself to a transfer fee in that in that region. Like, I, I think Maybe, we could yeah. get... We could get a good percentage of it back, but I don't think there's any way we're getting 55, 60 million for Obama Yang. Well, it's a different player, of course, and one of the greatest players of all time, but Ronaldo was 33 and cost 100 million. So... Yeah, but there was more, you know, there's more to Ronaldo. The there's the brand. There's, you know, just the every all the fucking shit that goes with him, you know? Um, yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, I suppose, I suppose I get into a situation there where I'm like, well, what, what do you think we can get for a bit? If you're telling me it's thirty million quid, I'm thinking, well, I'll keep the player. Like, we can't buy anyone for that. Of course you can. Do you know what I mean? Of course you can. You can use thirty million quid to buy. Uh, you may not get like a world class replacement, but maybe we don't. Maybe. Um, the way we should be operating is not to go and say, we've got to replace Aubameyang with a player who is as good as Aubameyang now, but rather identify a player who might become something close to the kind of striker Aubameyang is. I know that's difficult and what have you, and it's especially difficult when you think, when you go back to what we were saying about the recruitment and how the players are being uh, identified. You yeah. know, are, are we are we actively scouting players based on what they might be and what they might become, or are the targets that we have um, clients of our mates? Well, I mean, that's the question. I mean, so, so would you sell both then? Is that is that your current position? Because you make uh, a good case for it. I, I think it's. I think it's got to be something that's that we have to consider if we are going to go 
full reboot and and look to maximize the resources available to us. If you accept, let's say, that Aubameyang or Lacazette, if he continues in this vein of form, you're going to need to replace him in the team anyway. Mm. Aubameyang, like I like Aubameyang and I think he's a great goal scorer, but I also think we have to be realistic about the, the situation. Well, also, I think he's a brilliant goal scorer, but when I look at the system Arteta plays, he doesn't, to me, look like he's either... Uh, and maybe the system is just a function of the player, a consequence of the players we have, but he doesn't look like the centre-forward Arteta would ideally want, nor the winger he would ideally want. Sure, but I, I mean? yeah, no, I agree. But I also think that perhaps you need to look at restructuring the team. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you're using players behind the striker who might make him more effective uh, and and sort of change his role. So you're not looking for the striker to drop deep. You're looking for the striker sure. to get on the end of things. So, you know, this sure, sort sure. of front five that we have at the moment, maybe the midfield three changes, which allows that player to do more. So it's a really I difficult mean, situation, you know. Well, but- uh, to an extent, our decision might be taken out of our hands. I know the club supposedly have the power, but I think both those players will want to leave this summer. Yeah. If uh, we don't have Champions I- League football, I don't think Aubameyang is going to want to stick around. Um, I He's got a know. lifelong dream of playing for Real Madrid. I think this would be his last chance. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, if if he can yeah. get that move, there's no doubt he'll want to do it. Mm. I, I don't know that Lacazette really has the the same cachet when it comes to he might want Champions League football, but I don't know that there are. Um, I don't know that he's a shoe in for a Champions League side. Maybe back in France, but back in France, maybe maybe Spain. But I mean. Yeah, it's not the same cachet. You're right, that yeah. Aubameyang currently carries, especially in this form. Um, I mean, we're talking about Champions League. On the Discord, Zach Tay says, is any hope of top four completely gone for you now? Yes. I, I do know that this weekend was the weekend we could cease to win the uh, Premier League. <laughs> so it's officially out of our hands. Sad moment. Yeah, no, absolutely no chance of top four. I think we need to be much more realistic. I think if we finish sixth or seventh, it would be a good, a good final uh, place based on what's come before. Based on where we are now, what's left of the season, if we can finish sixth or, th- or seventh, I think that would be as good as we can get. Six points to Spurs, any chance? Yes, certainly, but, you know, we've got to start winning. Got to start winning. Can't keep drawing yeah. games. Um, so, yeah. We, we do love seeing, a draw. We do love a draw. And uh, Neil Siglechner probably mangled that. Um, it says it's probably been asked already, but but should we read anything into the fact that Maitland Niles wasn't in the squad yesterday? Is the Suarez signing a prelude to his departure? Well, I'm a bit frustrated actually because we didn't ask in the press conference about Maitland Niles, but I'm sure we can find out about that. But uh, it doesn't look great for Maitland Niles. I have to say, I don't buy the idea that Arteta sort of sees him as the solution in central midfield. I, I just don't think there's sufficient evidence for that. Yeah, um, I'd agree, yeah. And he was kind of directly asked about it in the press conference and he gave a bit of a sort of wishy-washy answer, you know, oh. where he was like, oh, you know, a lot of players can impress in a lot of positions or something like that. And I was like, eh. if you really thought this guy had what it takes, I think you would stick your neck out and say. And I think Maitland-Niles is someone whose position in the squad has to be up for... Mm debate and is in some jeopardy really and um, I, I, you know it's a bit of a shame as it is with any academy player but 
it is also part of the process and part of the churn, I suppose. Yeah, I've, I've saw Arteta's comments and he said, you know, he can play as a holding midfielder. He's played a lot of his football there. And I was thinking, when? Mm. When? You know, he mm. does... He, Arsene Wenger, we had this discussion. Arsene Wenger said he could be a DM, but he's never really played there. Uh, you know, um, most of his football has come up fullback. He's played a few games further forward. Um, if Sabayas had gone before the end of the transfer window yeah, yeah. and we brought in Suarez, I would be much more in line with the idea that Maitland-Niles was being uh, seen as a, a midfield option. But the fact that he wasn't even on the bench yesterday, I think it is a bit of a worry and maybe it is a bit of a worry about how Arteta sees him. Which It's also a bit of a surprise because he's played well. He played well mm. under Arteta until Hector's come back into the team and is looking a bit more like his old self, which is great, but I, I don't think Maitland-Niles did... Uh, an awful lot wrong um, when he played so no I think that I agree with you but I think our perception of how Maitland-Niles played and Mikel's might be slightly different and just sort of looking back and thinking about you know watching Arteta watching Maitland-Niles and a couple of sort of slightly needless concessions of possession I do wonder if he just didn't really fancy him and yeah it feels that way it feels that way yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens in the summer. I mean, one of the things that uh, a player playing nearly 100 games for Arsenal, which Maitland-Niles has done, uh, is it increases their transfer value. You know, it, it yeah. makes them more valuable uh, in the market. Young English player, 100 games for Arsenal. You know, there'd be plenty of clubs who would be prepared to pay money for for a guy with that experience and that development at 22 years of age. So, you know, if it's a case that that his time is up, it'd be a shame. But I think the benefit to us would be financial uh, in terms of, you know, what, what he might bring in and how we might then use that money. Yeah, it'd be interesting for a buying club. What would you think you were buying? You know, what would mm. you buy him to be? That's uh, true, yeah. I mean, it's great. He's so versatile, but I'd be fascinated to see if he did go somewhere else. Where would they play? Um, yeah. Anyhow. Uh, oh, well, this is a question kind of looking, at, I guess, slightly ahead towards the summer. It's from Bogan Gooner on Twitter. And Bogan says, is someone to string our midfield and attack together now a bigger priority than defenders? Well, we've got lots of defenders. We've certainly got numbers, yeah. We've got numbers. We've got Saliba to come in. Um so yes, I think I think the next big signing needs to be a, a midfield player, a central midfield player, mm. um, somebody you know who's you know not an Ozil, not a, a classic number ten, because I don't think that role really. Um, not that it doesn't exist anymore, but I don't think those kind of players exist anymore. Where they need to be a bit more something between you know. Uh, an attacking A. I don't know quite how to describe it, but, you know, somebody who can create, but you need the athleticism, you need the physicality. I would be very surprised if if central midfield wasn't somewhere that we were looking to bring in at least one player during the summer. At least Likewise. one. Likewise. You know, um, yeah, I think there are some doubts over uh, Shaka still about what, what his future might hold. 
Mm. Um, Sabias will go back. Sabias will go back. I mean, I don't think there's any way we're going to pay Real Madrid the 30 no. million, 35 million that they want for Sabias. Um, nor should we. I don't think we've seen anything from him. Uh, you know, again, understanding that there are mitigating circumstances, had the injury, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, he's he's been all right. Bit lightweight though, you know, and and not worth what what uh, Real Madrid are looking for. Uh, I also think there are maybe some question marks over Genduzzi. Uh, you know, again, I go back. I think he's a, a player with potential. I don't think that. Um, we should be quite as hot on him as as um, as some people appear to be. Like I think he's very uh, talented. I think he's uh, he's willing. He's energetic. He's busy. But I think there are a lot of questions about his game. Mm. Um, mm. I, I know I sent this to you on text yesterday, and we have had a little bit of a joke about this on the yeah. show in the past. But genuinely. He could be the worst header of the ball I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it is. It is kind of unbelievable. And uh, for for a yeah. central midfield player, that's a fundamental part of the game. The ability I mean, he to, plays yeah. like he's really read the dementia studies. Do you know what I mean? I mean, he is. <laughs> he does not want to. <laughs> that's why he's got the hair. It'll protect him. Yeah, of course. He's not an idiot. But uh, no, it's a real issue. And actually, I think he's trying, he's competing for more yeah. headers now. But but he, it's a massive aspect of the game that he just can't really The technique do. is 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 really bad. Yeah. It's, it's really bad. Um, like he will challenge. And in fairness, the other day we, we had a... A chat about how how he did win some headers and how that was you know a, a positive and an an, uh, an improvement um, yeah. over what had come before. Yeah. But you know he was just you know there were too many too many second balls bouncing. Arsenal let too many balls bounce yesterday against Burnley as well. There are a number of times that that happened um, where we kind of got away with it, but I think it added to the pressure that we were under. And we've got to be a bit mm. more aggressive. And I think having somebody in the centre of midfield who can uh, be more dominant in that area of the game is is important. So, I uh, I was sat next to in the press box the guys from the sort of Arsenal analyst department. So they're sat watching the game mm. and they've got a computer screen in front of them. And as the game's going through, they they're taking little clips um, of the footage and sort of storing them away to feed into the coaching staff and they feed them in at half time if they're wanted and of course you know in, in the coming days in this, as they break down and talk about the game and there was one instant in our half where I think Ganduzi sort of I, I think he challenged for about three headers in succession but they all kind of went just straight up in the air mm. so if you uh, maybe second half sorry and um <laughs> I sort of looked over their screen and, you know, I could see a little clip being made and I thought, mm, I think that might come up. I think that might yeah. come up. It's an issue. Like, people might laugh at it and we've had a joke about it, but it's definitely an issue that if a key part of, of what a midfielder is supposed to do is, if not beyond you, something that you really struggle with, you know, I... You know, I think part of the reason Mustafi played and plays at Burnley is that in aerial duels, he is pretty good, especially for a man who's not especially tall. Yeah. And um, there isn't loads of that through the side. I mean, it's becoming really obvious to me that we don't really have an exit ball if we want to go long from Leno. Uh, in fact, at Bournemouth, 
uh, in the FA Cup. Was it was that our previous game before Burnley? Mm. The exit ball was Gabriel Martinelli, and Arteta was shouting at Leno like, "Gabby, Gabby, if you want to go long, let's kick it to the." teenage Brazilian who's about five foot eight or something so but it's also really good in the air as you can see there's a talent there uh, there is and I think it makes sense but I also think that speaks to the fact that you know there are other players in this team who don't really offer a huge Mm. amount in that respect and you know that is part of the game particularly in England when you've got to go to places like Burnley and you know I mean I watched Aubameyang marking Tarkovsky uh, at all their set pieces yesterday and I mean Christ how Tarkovsky didn't get a goal at some point I don't only know but yeah, yeah there you go yeah it's it's uh, it's another thing it's an area we could improve yes it's another thing for Mikel Arteta to, uh, to consider as he plans his squad for the rest of the season and also what we do in the, in the transfer market in January but look uh, you have to go so we've got a call time on this particular episode uh, there is a it two- wasn't that noisy in the end no it wasn't it's only just beginning to get noisy downstairs I can hear some of the um, I can hear some of the banging and stuff beginning. So uh, we've got away with it. So that part is good. Um, We will have a podcast on Friday of some description, even though there's a two-week break. So uh, bear with us for that. Also, we'll be back next week for a kind of mid-break Arscast Extra. Uh, The the players will be away in Dubai doing their thing. Uh, So until then, thanks for listening as always. Hope you enjoyed the show and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye.